Our sermon this morning is on King Ahab, the the rest of the life of King Ahab from uh, chapters 20 through 22 in the book of 1 Kings. We're going to finish the book of 1 Kings today. We've been working through it for a couple of months now. If If you're using a pew Bible, you can find 1 Kings chapter 20 on page 281. So turn there in your Bible and follow along, and we're going to work through these next couple of chapters. We looked at uh, King Solomon for the first few weeks, his life and his reign. We looked at Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the divided kingdom of Israel. Uh, We looked at Elijah and his ministry. Um, And now we're going to look at the rest of King Ahab's Ahab's life, which is going to take us right up through the rest of the the book. We're going to pause on our kind of joint series through First and Second Kings. Uh, we're going to pick it back up in the fall. Next week we're going to look at a psalm, and then um, we're going to start the book of Romans the following week after that. We're going, to, we're going to work through the book of Romans over the course of maybe the next year or two, kind of off and, off and on. But today, First Kings, a lot of ground to cover. It's an exciting story. It moves fast, so I'm going to pray, and we're just going to get right to it. We're going to read through pretty much the entirety of these last few, few chapters and work through it together. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing on our, on our time in your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would help us to listen together to your word and to respond rightly to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Let's rock and roll. Chapter 20, verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, horses and chariots. And he went up and he closed in on Samaria and he fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city uh, to King Ahab of Israel. And he said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children, they are also mine. Sounds pretty cruel. Sounds pretty uh, heartless. And it is, it was, that's what kings did at this time, right? That was kind of their foreign policy. That was diplomacy, was just gather all of the biggest, strongest men, go take what you want from whoever you want, might makes right, and then kind of the the bigger, stronger civilizations and empires would kind of emerge from that kind of dog-eat-dog system. Verse 4, the king of Israel answered and he said, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, all that you have. Ahab is terrified. He knows that he can't stand up against Syria. Bigger army, bigger nation. Take whatever you want. Just don't hurt me. Verse 5. Then the messengers came and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. Nevertheless, round two is coming. Now I'm going to send my servants to you tomorrow and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and they will lay hand on whatever pleases them and they will take it away. So it was, a, so it was a, like Ben Hadad's like that was a little too easy. Like I said, I wanted your wives and your children and your silver and your gold, and you just gave them to me. That, I was expecting you to put fight back a little bit. So if you're just going to give me all that stuff, then I'm going to keep searching until I find whatever it is that you are mad about that you don't want to to, to give me. And of course, Ahab says that's you know a bridge too far. Verse 7, the king of Israel called the elders of the land and he said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. He sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold and I did not refuse him. And all the the elders of Israel said, do not listen, do not consent to him. So then Ahab sent to to the messengers, tell my lord the king, at first everything that you demanded I will do, but this thing I cannot do. 
And the messengers departed, and they brought word uh, from Ahab to Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all of the people who follow me. So Ben-Hadad, he, you know, he says, give me your wives, children, gold, silver. Okay, I'll take it. And then he says, uh, I'm going to send search parties through and look through your house and take whatever they want over and above that that I already asked for. And he says, no. And he goes, all right, well, n- n- all right, you're a dead man. Like, I am going to, my army is going to come in, overtake your country, kill you, kill anyone that we want. We're going to burn the entire nation of Israel to the ground, reduce it to rubble. It won't, you, won't even be, you won't even be enough ashes and rubble and dust when we're done with it. We will decimate it so bad that there won't even be a handful of dust for every person in my, in my kingdom. We're going to reduce you to absolutely nothing. And then verse 11, King Ahab, King Ahab, he gives a nice little, this is one of the better comebacks in the Bible. You could, this, this we could still use today. King Ahab answered him and said, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. So he says, You, have, you haven't won yet, bucko. Like you're, like, don't, act like you're take, don't act like the battle is over when you're, you're, you're on the way to battle, not on the way back from battle. So maybe don't be quite so, so prideful. Verse 12, When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in their booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. Let's go. It's on. It's, it's time to fight. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And he said, Well, then who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You shall, King, king Ahab. Right, so Ahab's a bad guy, bad king. Over and over he's, he's said, it, you know, the Bible is very clear he's a bad king, but God is gracious and God is kind, and God gives chance after chance even to, to wicked kings like this. And so God says, go fight him. I, I'm with you. You're going to win. You don't even have to wait until he fights you. You can go pick the fight with, with him. Let's make it, make it happen. Verse 15, then he mustered the servants of the kingdom, of the governors of the districts, and there were 232 of them. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel. There were 7,000 of them. And they went out at noon, and Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, and he and the 32 kings who, who helped him. So you've got uh, Israel and their army is going out to fight against Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad's middle of the day. He's day drinking. He's plastered. Right? He is, he does, he's not taking this seriously at all. He has assumed that he is going to crush this guy. You can tell because he's slurring his words. Verse 17. The servants of the governors of Israel uh, of, of the districts went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent scouts and he reported. And they said, men are coming from, Samar- from Samaria. And Ben-Hadad says, if they have come out in peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. Well, he's drunk. He's not making any sense. They're like, all right, so just take them alive then? Because that's... You said the same thing. Well, that doesn't even make any sense. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's slurring his words. So they went out of the city, the servants and the governors of the districts of the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled. Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with his horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. 
big victory. This is exciting. This is crazy. The underdog has beaten the big giant. You know, this is, this is awesome. Verse 22, then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said, come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. So Ahab, don't get cocky. You had a, a victory that was good, but uh, it's gonna, there's going to be a, a they're going to run it back. There's going to be another round here. So don't, uh, you know, start preparing now for that. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods, the gods of Israel, they're gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we are because we were in the hills and that's their forte. But let us fight against them in the plains and surely we will be stronger than they are. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places. So you had a bunch of politicians running the army. Those guys don't know how to fight. So get rid of them and put commanders, real men that are strong and can kill people. Let's go muster an army like the one we had. Let's retool horse for horse, chariot for chariot, right? Let's go get an army that's as big or bigger than we had with real men, real fighting commanders in charge of it, and let's go uh, take them back this, this next time. So uh, Ahab has been instructed that there's going to be another round, so get ready. Uh, Ben-Hadad has been counseled. Let's go ahead and retool and let's go fight them again. Verse 26, in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went back up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. So the first, the first battle was already an underdog, kind of a, a, a Cinderella story. This one's even more. The, the armies of Israel look like two cute little, you know, it's so cute that you came out here, little flocks of goats, and the Syrians have this massive, huge army, battalions, and all, you know, it's, it's, it's super intimidating. There's no, like, the, the fact that Israel won the first time was already unlikely. There's no way that they win again. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The prophet says, there's a lot of things that God will patiently just endure, kind of bear with, but if you start, if you attribute the, the, the potential loss of, of Israel's army, and you say that's because God is weak, that's because God can't match up, stack up against our gods, God is going to make a, make a fool out of you. Verse 29, and they encamped, opposite one another on seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest of them fled into the city. And the wall fell upon 20,000 men who were, were left. Another win. It's huge. Ben-Hadad, the king, also fled and entered into an inner chamber in the city. So he's on the run again. And then his servants come to him, verse 31, his servants come to him and say, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. So Ben-Hadad, let's put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and let's go out to the king of Israel and perhaps he will spare your life. Let's throw ourselves upon the mercy of the, of the court here. And they tied sackcloth around their waists and they put ropes on their heads and they went to the king of Israel and they said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. Now, Ben-Hadad's a bad guy. He's a bad king. He's, he's kind of twice now mobilized his entire army to come attack Israel and, and kill them and destroy them. Uh, God has determined 
that Ben-Hadad needs to die. We can see that later in verse 42. We're coming up on it. So uh, Ben-Hadad's a bad guy, and, and Ahab at this moment should kill him. So that's, that's what he should do. Instead, uh, King Ahab says, does he still live? He's my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him, and they said, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Yeah, you, yeah absolutely, he is your brother. Then they said, go and bring him. And Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to look into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father I will restore to you. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, all right, I'll let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So Ahab is kind of uh, cozying up to uh, Ben-Hadad. Largely because there's, there's some incentive here, right? God has said, uh, you know, kill this man. Like, don't, don't let him go. Don't take him prisoner. Just go ahead and, and kill him. And, and, ben, and Ahab says, well, maybe we can find a mutually beneficial arrangement where you pay me off, you give me some of the land that, that I want. I'd be glad to disobey the commands of the Lord and take money and go home and let Ben-Hadad into the wild despite the fact that, that God wants me to kill him, despite the fact that he wants to kill me, and he's probably going to be looking for revenge against me at uh, his first opportunity. So, it's not a wise move that, ben, that, that Ahab makes here. We're going to see, we're going to see kind of how, how the, the, you know, the prophets of God rebuke him for it in the next couple of verses. Verse 35, A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow command of the Lord, Strike me, please. So a prophet of God goes up to another prophet and says, Please punch me in the face. Please, you know, beat me up, knock me out real good. But the, uh, the man refused to strike him. Now, I would probably do that too. It makes sense. If this stranger came up to me and said, Punch me in the face, I probably wouldn't do it. These guys are prophets, and so it stands to reason that the one prophet would know that the other prophet was speaking and even commanding on behalf of God. So verse 36, then the one prophet says, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you've gone from me, a lion is going to strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. So the, 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 the message seems to be, do what the Lord says. Don't disobey the clear commands of the Lord that are given to you by a prophet of the Lord. If you do, things will not end well for you. Take note here, Ahab. So then the prophet goes to another man who presumably saw this whole thing go down. Saw the guy say no, saw him get eaten by a lion. All right, well, you punch me in the face. And the man, he's, sure, I'll punch him. So he struck him and he wounded him. And then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. So he's there, he's beaten up, he's bloody from where, you know, like fight club. He asked the guy to punch him in the face. He's lying on the ground. Got, he's like the English patient, bandages all over his body. As the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, King, your servant, I went out into the midst of battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, and if he is missing by any means, your life shall be taken for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And, as your ser- and me, I was busy here and there. And then the guy that I was told to watch was gone. So what... What should happen to me? You're, you're the final court of appeals in the nation. I made this mistake letting this guy go that I was supposed to watch and take care of. And, and now, what's going to happen to me? And the king says, so shall your judgment be. You yourself 
have decided it. So Ahab says, I don't know, I don't, what do you want me to do about it? I don't like it any better than you do. Seems like a pretty, seems like an open and shut case. You were supposed to watch the guy. You let him get away. You're, so now you have to die. You have to be executed per the original agreement. And then the prophet hurried to take the bandages away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Big reveal, right? Yeah. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be taken for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen, and he came to Samaria. So it's, it's, you know, remember the story with um, King David? how he you know, commits adultery and then he murders Uriah the Hittite and then uh, a prophet comes to him and gives with this story about what if a rich guy takes something from a poor guy. I, that's pr- ridiculous. That guy should be, you know, he's in big trouble. And Nathan says, you're the man, you're the guy. This was just, a, well, the same thing here, right? Like here's a story remarkably similar to your own story. You're too foolish to see how, right, the, the guilt that you're mad about in me is actually what I'm talking about, talking about you. So now Ahab is, is uh, you know, cut to the quick. He's, he's upset that he's been found out for disobeying God and failing to, to kill Ben-Hadad like God wanted him to. And so he goes home and he's vexed and he is sullen. He's, and what does everyone do when you're sad and depressed? You go shopping. Chapter 21. Now Daboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard so that I can have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. And I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you uh, its value in, in money. So I, you have this land, this property. It's, I, it's, I want it. Imminent domain, hand it over. You want money, you want another vineyard, whatever. I want that so I can grow tomatoes. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So now Naboth has an, Naboth has an opportunity here similar to what Ahab had back with Ben-Hadad, right? Uh, I can do what the king says. I can ingratiate myself to this rich and powerful king, and I can line my pockets along the way, and I can probably upgrade to a nicer, better vineyard and walk with a bunch of money and be set for life. The catch is, I'd be disobeying God. When God brought the people into the promised land in the book of Joshua, it was very clear. There's like a dozen chapters that are kind of the whole, you know, if you're doing the Bible in a year, you've got to grind through these because it's a little bit, you know, this area was given to this clan, you know, this tribe and this clan and this family. And all of the, the land in Israel was kind of apportioned out by God to particular clans and particular families. And God says, you keep this land, right? In fact, there were rules that say if you have to sell your land, then the person you sold it to is to give it back. Every seven years, all the way is to go back to the, to the families I gave it to. And so in Israel, they'd say, if you, if you sell, like when you go to calculate how much your land is worth, they would literally, it was kind of like a long-term rental. They'd say, well, I have to give it back in three years, so I'm going to, that's going to be the price that I'm going to pay. Or I have to give it back in six years, so it's worth more because I've got, but every seventh year, all the land goes back to the people who it was originally uh, for. And so God is saying, don't, cash out. Don't sell to the highest bidder. Keep your land. It's a gift from me to you. It's for you, your families, for all the generations. Keep it, work it, cultivate it. Use it as a, a, a 
healthy, strong foundation for a thriving, flourishing family. And Ahab uh, is trying to, you know, give Naboth a chance to disobey God and, and pay him off, kind of make it in his best interest financially. How much money will it take for me to get you to disobey God so that I can have this thing that I want that I am sinfully coveting? Naboth says, there, there is no price. Obeying God is more important to me than anything that you can offer. So Ahab goes back to pouting, verse 4. Then Ahab went to his house. He's vexed and sullen again because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. And he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down in his bed and he turned his face away and he wouldn't even eat his food. Like my two-year-old, right? I'm mad because my truck broke and I'm not going to eat until I... You know, it's a tantrum. And then Jezebel, verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you don't even eat food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else. If it please you, I'll give you another vineyard. And he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, is like, Dude, aren't you, do you govern Israel? Aren't you the king? Get up and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. It's not looking good. Je- Jezebel's a bad lady. She's mean. She's evil. She's vindictive. She is, is ruthless. And so if she says, I'm going to go get this vineyard, that alarm bell should be coming off, that this is not going to end well. Right? Come on, Ahab, you're the king. Don't be such a wuss. Just, if you want it, take it. If he won't give it to you, kill him. What's the big deal? Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with Ahab's seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders with, who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote them letters and said, I want you to proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You, Naboth, you have cursed God and you have cursed the king. And then take Naboth out and stone him to death. Kill him, right? Murder Naboth. Do it in a way that that, uh, won't be traced back to me or to Ahab. But whatever you do, kill Naboth. And the men of the city, verse 11, the elders, they did as as Jezebel had said. And the letters went to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people. Nahab has cursed God and the king. And they took him out and they stoned him to death with stones. Jezebel murders Naboth, a good man, a godly man. She kills him because her husband wants to grow tomatoes. In her eyes, that's a perfectly viable, it's perfectly viable and and legitimate to, to murder a man so that I can get what I want, so that my husband can have what he wants. Then they said to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and he is dead. Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, she went to Ahab and said, Arise, Ahab, take possession of, of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose and went down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Well, isn't that convenient? My ruthless violent, wicked wife murders a man and now I get to grow cucumbers. 
And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has taken possession of it. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? Right? You're, a, you're a murderer and a thief. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick up your own blood. You're a dead man, Ahab. You were already a dead man because you let Ben-Hadad go. Now you're even more of a dead man because you let Naboth be murdered by your wicked wife. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he said, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. We saw him a couple of weeks ago. And like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Saw him too. For the anger which you have provoked me, because you have made Israel to sin. And Jezebel the Lord also said, or, and of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat them. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat them as well. Ahab, you're going to die. The people in your family are going to die. And they're not even going to get a proper burial. They're going to be eaten by wild animals and mongrels and raven, birds, right? Buzzards. Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. This is, a, this is the, the power couple of evil and rebellion and idolatry and sin. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Ahab's a bad guy, he's done bad things, and Elijah has called him to account for the bad things that he's done. And now, verse 27, Ahab, up until now Ahab has been pouting, sulking, right? But, but now Ahab appears to exhibit, at least for a moment, some genuine repentance. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and he went about dejectedly. So this looks less like selfish pouting. I'd I, don't, I want my vineyard, and he won't sell it to me. I'm mad. I'm not going to eat my dinner. And more like genuine, he's, he's you know, convicted of his sin, and he's mourning over it, at least for the time being. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but his son's days I will bring disaster upon his house. So, so because of this brief, small glimmer of, of repentance that I'm seeing in his heart and in his soul. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to bring judgment on him. Personally, I'll do it on his kids and on his wife, which, spoiler alert, that happens. 2 Kings 9, we'll get there uh, later, later in the year. All of that happens exactly like Elijah said. Chapter 22, verse 1. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down north, but he's coming down a mountain, came down uh, to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet, and we do not take it out of the hands of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria? 
They said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? Hey, come on, you know, you're the king of the the southern tribes of Judah. I'm the king of the northern tribes of Israel. And and this guy, Benadad, is a jerk, right? I could have killed him, but I didn't because I'm a nice guy. And when I did, he gave me back some of the cities around Damascus. But there's other property that he has that still belongs to me, to us. We got to go get Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And Jehoshaphat is on board, right? I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. But he's also a little... But why don't we inquire first uh, for the word of the Lord? So Jehoshaphat's like, all right, I'm on board, but let's like see what God has to say about this. Verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And he said, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. It's classic Ahab, right? Ahab has prophets on the ready, on the payroll, on retainer. Your job is to just eat and drink and be merry until I want something, and then I'm going to tell you what I want you to tell me, and I want you to tell me exactly the thing that I told you to tell me so that I can feel justified and validated in the thing that I already wanted to do. Did it with the prophets of Baal. He had 450 of them. Did it with the prophets of Asher. He had 400 of them, and now he has these prophets, 400 of these guys who are there. Their sole job is just to tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Part of what it means to be a healthy Christian who is positioned him or herself to grow spiritually is that you don't surround yourself with yes men who tell you exactly what you want, who always tell you how good you are and how smart you are and how right you are. Part of what it means to, to, to position yourself to grow in your faith is that you have to surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth about God and about yourself and not just exactly what you want to hear. Which, which is exactly what church membership is, right? Surrounding yourself with people who have committed, they've made a covenant to you that they're going to speak truthfully to you, confront you, rebuke you as necessary, right? They're going to feel emboldened to speak the truth to you instead of, um, you know, obligated or beholden to say what they think that you want to to hear. Ahab would have hated being a member of a church because Ahab liked to be told to do whatever he wanted and he didn't like when people told him things he didn't want to hear. So he's got 400 of his prophets. He says, yeah, let's ask these guys what we should do. And Jehoshaphat said, eh, I'm not buying this, Ahab. This is a little too convenient that all of these guys who all happen to work for you all say that God has told them that we should go into this battle. Is there not another prophet here of the Lord that we may inquire, right? Ahab, these are not real, these are puppets, not prophets. Let's find a real prophet. Verse 8, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, okay, you got me. There is one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah. But I hate him. I hate him because he never says anything good. He always says that I'm being evil. And so I hate him and I don't want to talk to him. And Jehoshaphat says, let not the king say so, right? Get over yourself. Shut up, right? Like, that's stupid to only listen to the people who say what you want them to say. 
instead of listening to the people who are actually going to tell you what you need to hear. So don't be stupid. Let's hear from the real word of, let's hear the real word from the real prophet of the Lord. Then verse 9, the king of Israel summoned an offering and said, bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Okay, so now we, maybe we're going to hear a different side of this, of this story. Maybe we shouldn't go into this battle with Ben-Hadad. Who knows? Let's see what, let's see what um, Micaiah says. Now the king of Israel and the king of Jehoshaphat were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in all their special robes, verse 10, and the threshing floor, the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets. So, so you've got the two kings, and they're all their splendor, and you've got 400 prophets, and they're all there. Oh, you guys are the best. You guys do whatever you want. We're on your team. We think God's going to bless everything that you do. Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, uh, made for himself horns of iron. And he said, thus says the Lord, with these horns you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. So now we've got little skits, little object lessons being made by all these little puppet prophets. Oh, look, like, yeah, this is, God's going to give you victory. We promise. We know that that's what's going to happen. All the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hands of the king. So while all, that, you know, while all that show, pomp and circumstance, all this just kind of performative nonsense is happening, verse 13, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. So Micaiah, your job is to say what God says, but your job is also to say for him to go into battle. Uh, I don't know what God says. You're the prophet, not me, but just do yourself a favor, do me a favor, and speak favorably. Uh, Agree with the 400 prophets that are already all agreeing together. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Verse 14, but Micaiah says, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, I will speak. I'm not doing that, gar- I'm not going to say what you want me to say, what the other prophets have all agreed, conspired together to say, and what Ahab wants me to tell him. I'm not doing any of that. I'm going to say what God told me to say, and if I perish, I perish. Right? Let the chips fall where they may. I'm speaking the words of God. And when they came to the king, the king said, Micaiah, shall we go into Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? What's Micaiah going to say? Is he going to go along with all of the 400 prophets, or is he going to go his own way and say his own thing? What should we do, Micaiah? Micaiah says, yeah, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. This is sarcasm. He's making, he's saying, Ahab, you're so ridiculous. You've got these 400 people that you've paid to say this one thing. Yeah, go, go, fine. Go ahead and do what they all say. See how that works out for you. And the king sniffs it out. He says, how many times will I make you swear to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Quit making fun of me. Quit, like, set, quit being sarcastic and telling me what you know. I, I don't think you really think I should do that because you always say what I don't want to hear. So tell me what it is for real. And then Micaiah's like, all right, you want the truth? I'll give you the truth. I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep who have no shepherd. Their king has been killed. And now they're scattered all over. And then the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to their home in peace. You've been fighting for a man who's been killed. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will scatter. They're all going to go home and just hope that they don't, you know, hope for the best in their respective houses. Verse 18, then the king of Israel looked at Jehoshaphat and said, didn't I tell you? 
I told you that he would say bad things. This is a bad guy. I don't like him. I hate him. And Micaiah said, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him and his right hand on his left. And the Lord said, which of you is going to go entice Ahab and make him go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? I want Ahab to die and I want someone here in my audience to go make Ahab, like make him want to go do that because that's going to be where I have him die. And one spirit, or one said to one thing, and another said another, and then a spirit came forward and said, uh, I will entice him. And the Lord said, by what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed, go out and do so. Now therefore, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. This is a weird passage. There's some ambiguity as to whether, is this an angel doing the Lord's bidding but lying on behalf of the Lord? Or is this a demon that is going to lie but is just kind of doing it in accordance with God's, you know, it, it's, we don't really know. So there's some speculation, I suppose. But what's clear, though, is that God does not sin. God does not lie. God is not the author of sin. God is not responsible for sin. But God is sovereign over sin. When people sin, God is sovereign over their sin, and God can use their sin to accomplish his sinless, perfect purposes and, and plan. When, when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan and fell into sin, God used that to make much of Christ and to, to exalt him as, as the savior of his people. When, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, God uses that to save many lives. When David commits adultery and murder, God uses that to establish the, the, the lineage of, of Jesus. When Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of his murderers, God uses that to accomplish the salvation of his people. So God doesn't sin, but God is sovereign over sin, and he uses sin to accomplish his purposes. So Micaiah says, everyone else has been agreeing because they're all being deceived by a deceitful spirit. It's not a very flattering message, description of these 400. He says, they're all puppets, they're all idiots, and they're all being deceived by by a deceitful spirit. They're not hearing the word of God. So let's hear what they have to say about Micaiah for saying that about them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chinana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? So not a fan. If I ever finish preaching a sermon and I ask you how I was and you punch me in the face, I think we can all safely assume that you weren't a fan of that sermon. So Zedekiah says, the spirit of the Lord, look, bucko, the spirit of the Lord around here speaks through me, not you. And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. 
right? He says, I'll, I'll incentivize this guy. I'll make sure that he doesn't prophesy against me like that. You're going to go to jail until I come home safely. And Micaiah says, look, throw me in jail if you want. It's not going to change anything, right? If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me, right? You're not coming back, buddy. So you can put me in jail if you want. It doesn't matter. Uh, you're still going to die in battle. Chapter 22, verse 29. Now, so Ahab and you'd think that Jehoshaphat might be like, yeah, this is maybe not blessed by the Lord. Let's not do it. No, they're still in it. They're, they're, they're on board. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your royal robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself. Look, I'm not a military strategist. But if, the, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, uh, can you come fight this battle with me that mainly benefits me, not really you so much, but mostly me, and then when it comes time to go into battle, he says, the guy that we're going into battle with hates me and wants to kill me, he doesn't really care about you so much, but he does hate me and he wants to kill me. His bullets are going to be flying in my direction. Also, the prophet said that I'm going to die in this battle. Let's not forget that important detail. So here's what I propose. Given all of that, I'm going to go incognito. I'm going to dress like a regular person. No one's going to know who I am. You wear your royal robes and just put like my name tag on your chest. Make sure everyone thinks that you're me. No reason. No reason. If anyone comes to you with that proposal, don't do it. Because he's trying to get you to die instead of him. Now the king of Syria had because yeah, the king of Syria had commanded the thirty-two captains of his chariots, fight with neither great nor small, but only with don't, don't go after you know low-level guys. I don't care about them. Don't go after Jehoshaphat, I don't care about him. Go after Ahab, that's the man that I want to kill. Bring me his head. And the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, and they said, It surely is the king of Israel. So they went after him, and Jehoshaphat cried out, I'm not him! Stop! It's a misunderstanding. And the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel. They turned back from pursuing him. Daggone that Ahab, he tricked me. He's a coward, and he tricked me. He knew Ben-Hadad would be coming after him, and that's why he wanted me to dress up and, and kind of parade around as, as bait. But then, verse 34, a certain man drew his arrow at random and just shot it. And it struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. And he said to his driver, turn around, carry him out of battle, for I am wounded. Ahab thought he was a wise guy. Thought he was going to outsmart God by not, you know, by, by pretending to be someone else and kind of being incognito. You can't outsmart God. God is sovereign. Judgment will come against sin. God will be victorious. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians, weakened to Bernie's, until everything died. Until the evening he died, and the blood from his wound flowed out into the bottom of his chariot, and at sunset a cry went out to the army that says, Every man to his city, every man to his country. Which is exactly what was prophesied was going to happen. Exactly what Micaiah would say, right? The shepherd will be killed, the sheep will be scattered, and everyone will go back to their own homes. So the king died, verse 37, was brought to Samaria and was buried in the, the king of Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and all of his blood flowed out of it that had been pooling up and the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So he died just like Micaiah said he would die and then the, ex, the exact events happened just like, just like Elijah said would happen. 
Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and all the ivory house that he built, and the cities and everything, aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. That's the life and death of King Ahab. Verses 41 to 50, we see the the reign of Jehoshaphat down in Judah. He's a good king, a godly king. He loved God. He led the people to worship God, reigned for 25 years, and died. Verses 51 to 53, the reign of Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Just like his father, he's a wicked king. Follows his mother, Jezebel, worships idols. Leads the people of Israel to worship idols. Incites the judgment and wrath of God. Here's the big idea. Here's a big idea with, with 1 Kings 20 to 22. It's worth looking at these characters and considering what we can learn from them. Ahab is a coward. Plain and simple. He's, he's a man with little to no genuine conviction about anything. His only concern is to please himself and to do whatever his wife Jezebel tells him to do because he's a wimp which leaves him completely unable to take a moral stand on anything at all. He's too scared to stand up uh, for the people of Israel. He's too scared to, you know, he doesn't have the the gall to take uh, Naboth's vineyard, but he doesn't have the wisdom, the strength to confront his own covetousness. So like a wimp, he offers to buy it, then he sulks about it when when he won't sell it to him. Even Jezebel looks at him and is like, you're a wimp, you're a wuss. He's scared of getting killed by Ben-Hadad, so he tries to trick Jehoshaphat into taking the bullet for him. He's a, he's a coward. Friends, the path of least resistance is seldom the right path. When you're passive about sin in your life, when you do whatever is easy or comfortable or profitable instead of doing what's right, that's taking the path of Ahab. We need to repent of that. Jezebel is just downright evil. She'll stop at nothing, do absolutely whatever it takes, including murder people to get what... Human beings have literally zero value in her eyes. She is completely a slave to her desires. And when we care more about what we want, when we care more about getting our way than we care about other people who were created in God's image, that's taking the path of Jezebel. And we need to repent of that. And guys like Naboth and Micaiah are the exact opposite, right? Faithful, courageous, bold, integrity. Naboth could have cashed out, taken the easy money, but he didn't because God had forbidden it. The word of God and obedience to God meant too much to him and it cost him his life. It's better to die in obedience to Christ than it is to live in rebellion against him. Micaiah could have told Ahab what he wanted to hear. Things probably would have been much smoother for him. But he didn't. He proclaimed the word of God faithfully, truthfully, boldly. And it got him thrown in prison. It's better to obey Christ 
and go to prison than it is to disobey Christ, get everything that you want, but incite the judgment and the wrath of God. Obeying Christ is not easy. Following Christ is not easy. And here's why. Because the way of Christ, right, the, the path that Christ himself walked was not easy. Dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that sinners could be forgiven and reconciled to God. That, that wasn't easy. So it makes sense that following Jesus is not easy. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, if you're a part of the people of God, then we invite you to celebrate communion. During the last song, come forward. There'll be people standing here. Receive the elements, eat, drink. Remember that Jesus died for you so that you could be saved from your sin. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in him so that you might be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage and boldness to fight against sin and selfishness. We pray that you would help us to trust in you and receive your word and obey you, even when it's difficult. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.